Hello and welcome to Wangaratta Baptist Church. Thanks for downloading. We hope you enjoy this sermon. If you'd like to know more about our church or our programs or our people, visit our website, www.wangaratabaptist.com.au. This is the next installment of our sermon series, Acts Reenacted. We hope you enjoy. God bless. Acts Reenacted. And uh, we've been down some pretty tough roads lately. We've looked at corruption in the church. We've looked at uh, complaint and distraction in the church. Uh, we've looked at persecution in the church. We've looked at all these different things that the, the enemy will try to do to shut the church down. And we also read about the victories that the church uh, did and the wisdom they showed and the, and the presence of the Spirit giving them the ability to function in a, in a very uh, good way that actually preserved the life of the church in their midst. And, and uh, you know, last week we looked at the the pointing of the first deacons in the church and we learned that they were every bit the minister the apostles were and, and um, it was a 4800 word essay last week on my iPad uh, so I don't want to I can't summarize that up very well today and uh, but do download it do get the CD do what you need to do to have a good listen of that so uh, yeah go for it now we're going to continue on from chapter 6 uh, verse 8 so if you've got your Bibles go into that part of it and uh, and we'll start it'll be on the screen for you to follow as well Acts 6, starting at verse 8, we'll stop and start a bit through this. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. Uh, Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's leave it there for a minute. Now our text further introduces the, the, one of the deacons, Stephen. He was selected as one of the seven by fitting the criteria laid out by the apostles, where he was full of wisdom, where he had character, and where he was full of the Holy Spirit. And Luke further also mentioned that he was full of faith, which is a great thing for a man to have, and also reiterated the presence of the Holy Spirit in this man's life. As we go into this story, we also see that he's able to put more effort into describing him by saying he was full of God's grace and power, which makes him a strong but balanced Christ-like man in our midst here that we're reading about. One writer described him as being sweetness and strength merged into one personality. Stephen is also described in this passage as one who is being empowered by the Spirit to perform signs and wonders in the name and the power of Jesus. Now that's something to look at at another point. We see the fullness of Stephen's wisdom, faith and Holy Spirit empowerment in action as we dig further into this passage. He's, been ta he's actually taken on quite a formidable audience in the synagogue leaders here. And we see that he's matching wits with them really well. But when they find they can't argue against his theology with their own wisdom, they then resort to lies and violence in order to silence his God-placed words. And this brings him to a meeting with the Sanhedrin. 
We learned what the Sanhedrin was. It's the top 70 Jewish men of the land who were there to judge and make sure that the Torah was stayed you know, top of the list and they, the, all the intricacies of it were clarified by the Sanhedrin. These guys had a lot of power. This was the Jewish high court, basically. The charges brought to the Sanhedrin attention here are twofold and clearly stated in our text. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. The first charge against him is to speak against the temple of the Lord. The temple was incredibly sacred to the Jews. To them, it had become the sanctuary of God's presence. It was the holy place where they assumed God dwelt. Their worship revolved around that idea, and those coming from all over the, around the world at Pentecost were also coming to the place where God was perceived to be. That was the idea. They were all coming from all over the world to go to where God was. You know, for the Passover feast and for the Pentecost feast. To speak against the temple, the house or the dwelling place of God, was to be essentially speaking against God himself. The second charge against him is to speak against the, against the law of the Lord, the Torah. The law was holy scripture, a recording of the mind and the will of God. The law was God's word and as sacred as God himself to them. By speaking against the house and by speaking against the word, Stephen is accused of essentially speaking against the deity. What was being considered here before the court was the capital charge of blasphemy. These guys were in a bit of trouble. The charge against Stephen is then made clearer by his accusers. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to him. Now we can work out that Stephen has been reasoning with these Jewish leaders about the teaching of Jesus and his relationship to the law. The accusations being made here are described by Luke as false, so we know there are holes in their testimonies. But it gives us an insight into the context of conversation he would have been having with these synagogue leaders. In regards to the temple, Matthew 12, 6 shows that Jesus made it clear that he was greater than the temple. He said, one greater than the temple is here with you today. John records in chapter 2 of, uh, of his gospel that, that in the wake of his cleansing of the temple, when he's challenged about his authority, how do you have authority to do these things? And he turns around and says, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. Now, of course, that got them all scratching their heads going, what do you mean by this? And John makes further note that he said but the temple he spoke of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said and they believed the scripture that the words the believed scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. See Jesus knew a few things about himself. First, in his deity, his own bodily form housed God. He was fully God and fully human. He was the temple of God. He was the temple of God. Not that enormous stone structure that st stood in their midst. Second, his temple would rise again. And spiritually, we as his body become that temple. The fact that the Jews had almost deified the temple was actually a pretty laughable thing, particularly in the eyes of what Jesus, who Jesus was and what he thought about it all. In the terms of the other charge, Jesus never, ever discarded the law of Moses. A lot of people say, oh, we're, not under, we're under a different law nowadays, so, you know, so they take away the Old Testament, throw a baby out with the bathwater. 
Jesus never discarded the law of Moses. We read in Matthew 5.17 that Jesus came to fulfill the law. The law and the prophets were designed to do two key things. One, to point to the frailty of sinful man in the eyes of a holy God. And two, to point to Jesus. To point to the work of redemption through Christ. Jesus was 100% faithful to this mission. When he said on the cross, it is finished, he was saying that all the writings of the law and the prophets had reached their crescendo. All the needs of a priesthood and sacrifice and temples, all that stuff was completely fulfilled on the cross. The difference between the Christians and the Jews of Jerusalem was their stance on the law and the temple. The temple was considered God's dwelling place. Christians considered themselves to be that now. The law which had been written 1,500 years prior was seen as the Jewish final authority. The Christ who died and rose again a few months prior was the Christian's complete authority. So as Stephen is being brought, uh, brought to the Sanhedrin with the charges laid, it seems that, you know, that his teaching has pretty much echoed that of Jesus himself. And the last verse of the text we read indicates that Jesus was endorsing him as, as being on the right track when, he's, when they're looking forward and his face is shining like an angel. They're seeing that, okay, something is special about what he is communicating here. So the stage is set. The Sanhedrin are leaning forward, waiting intently. It says they've got an intent look on their face, ready to hear the defense that Stephen presents. So now we're going to go into it. Chapter 7 takes us into the defense of Stephen. Now, it took me a full 10 minutes to read out this text. So uh, I'm, not going to, I'm going to summarize it here. I'm going to get it, do a bit of a play-by-play here. Uh, take note of this time. Make notes uh, along the way and then, or download the sermon later and then read chapter 7 of Acts in your own time and uh, do what the Bereans did and actually you know, go back to see if what the preacher said was so. And, uh, and use this time as a bit of devotional time. It could be a good, a good devotional read for some of us here. So uh, I won't read it all out for you because it will take us forever. But uh, let's go. So as we read the first 50 verses, yep, it's that long, we see that Stephen has made a pretty clear case for his defense. While the modern Jews of his time made the temple such a sacred thing, we see through the key times of Jewish history that this was never the case. Stephen's defense begins with their beloved patriarch, Abraham. God does indeed speak clearly to him. And he has an incredible encounter with God. This incredible encounter began in Ur, modern-day Iraq, Mesopotamia. And then extended through Assyria. And finally into the Amorite city of Haran. No sacred temple, no priests, no Israeli soil. God made his holy ground among the heathen of Mesopotamia and beyond. He then continues into the other patriarchs as Abraham's descendants migrate to Egypt. In that field, Joseph is raised up in a powerful way by God and the nation's namesake, Jacob, later named Israel, lived out his years there. God was at work building up a powerful nation even while they lived subject to the tyranny of Pharaoh. Yet there was still no sacred temple, no priesthood to speak of, no sacrifices, no Israeli soil, not even the law. God made holy ground among a slave nation in Egypt. Then Moses rises up 
and is raised as a Hebrew in Pharaoh's house. He has great honor and privilege. But as he attempts to engage with his fellow Jews, he ends up killing someone and fleeing from Egypt. After 40 years of having a life elsewhere in the wilderness, he has a God encounter. God meets him in the Sinai, in the, in the Sinai wilderness. It's a bleak wilderness, yet it's there that he encounters God's presence. And that famous line was uttered, Take off your shoes for where you stand is holy ground. This patch of Midian Desert is now holy ground. Still no temple, no priesthood, no sacrifice, no law, no Israeli soil. Then on that same, that same mountain, some years later, the law of the Lord is proclaimed and written in stone. The tabernacle or the tent of witness is erected and the priesthood is established. They're still a long ways from home in Israel. Then there's Joshua, then there's the conquest of Canaan, then there's the establishment of the Davidic kingdom, and then there's Solomon, and then finally, the temple in Jerusalem is built. Yet even as Solomon determined to build the temple, he was well aware of its limitations with a limitless God. In his prayer of dedication to the temple he was able to build, he makes this proclamation in 1 Kings 8. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less the temple I have built. And to add punch to his argument, Stephen echoes Isaiah 66 when he speaks about the magnitude of God. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his mere footstool. The earth is the buffet in God's lounge room. That's the magnitude of God here. The point Stephen was making here before the Sanhedrin was called was that God's will and his presence and his plans and his inhabitants are far greater than a mere house of worship in a Palestine backwater, backwater no matter how amazingly beautiful it looked. And throughout their written and traditional history, God was never contained in such a way. The concept of a temple under the new covenant would far exceed the reach, the influence, and even the splendor of the Jerusalem temple. As Stephen states, the Lord does not dwell in a place made by human hand. And anywhere God is, is holy ground. It doesn't need to be the temple to be so. As we read through 1 and 2 Corinthians, there's three times we see that Paul writes that the temple or the dwelling place of God is and continues to be a holy residence of God. But believers need to beware because that holy dwelling is us. Stephen then turns his attention to the law as we keep reading. Now we'll go up to verse 51. You can read verses 1 to 50 in your own time. 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. It's at this point that he turns the tables on the judges before him. And his argument is actually putting them into the same boat as the rest of the world when it came to the work of the cross. As Stephen shows in his first comments, through the Abrahamic covenant, the rite of circumcision was introduced. So that every man, every day, would have private and intimate physical proof that they were a set-apart people. Let's just leave it at that. The Jews prided themselves 
on their ongoing tradition in this area and consider themselves every bit as set apart then as Abraham was through the practice of this rite. Stephen has been making it clear that God was residing in hearts, not temples. And then he turns to these Jewish leaders and says that their hearts were not set apart for God. Deliberately choosing the shameful word uncircumcised to describe the state of where they're at. This was designed to invoke some emotion, to raise up some, to get these guys stirred a bit. This was one of those get the attention hook statements. To qualify this statement, he pulls back the covers on the real story of the Jewish race and just how sinful they had been over the ages, even though they're God's people. Even in the wilderness, he started, he he outlays that. You know, while God is proclaiming the law on Mount Sinai, Aaron and the rest of the herd are out down there making a cow, a golden cow to worship. So even from day one of the law, these guys were, were not so good. He points out that they received a spiritually given law to follow, one spoken by their very creator and the one who made them a nation. And yet they at all times refused to truly and consistently follow that law. Anytime God or God wanted to speak into that situation, i.e. by sending a prophet to wake them up, the Jews would persecute or kill them. In Hebrews 11, we read about this in the faith chapter. You know, this, it talks about this. The writer says this, Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning and were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Wow. As we look over the Gospels, we also see that Jesus himself held this charge against the Pharisees as well in Matthew 23. This is what Jesus proclaims. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your ancestors. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. And, and so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom he murdered between the temple and the altar. I don't want to get all anti-Semitic here, so that's not the purpose here, okay? This is, this is still God's chosen people. And you know what? The church over 2,000 years has been God's chosen people and has done some probably some really big mess-ups too. So let's not go down that line. But Stephen's point here is this. The Jews had a shameful record when it came to hearing and obeying God. They, like the rest of the world, were guilty of tremendous sin. They sat back and watched while Moses was complained against, while Saul was per- persecu- persecuted David while Elijah was continually pursued by Jezebel, while others were treated miserably for the sole charge of speaking on behalf of the Lord. And as Stephen winds up, he points out that their their appetite to suit self rather than God was on display as they pushed to even have Jesus crucified as well. They persecuted and killed the ones who pointed to him, and they killed the one they were called to anticipate. 
It all came down to this one statement that Stephen was making. You call me lawless and a blasphemer. But that charge, well and truly, belongs on all of you. That's what he's saying to the Sanhedrin before him. And now we come to the dark yet glorious part of the story in verse 54 onwards. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep. Stephen walked before the Sanhedrin here with little regard to himself. There was no backing off or watering down what he stood for. With blasphemy charges coming his way and paid off false witnesses, making the case seem ironclad, for him there seemed nothing left to do but state his full case one last time. And then there was a moment where he knew his time was about to come to an end. And he proclaims to around the people around him, there's Jesus. He's at the right hand of the Father. And he's standing. Here's the deal, Sanhedrin. I've confessed him before you. And as he's promised, he's now confessing me before the Father. That's an amazing and confident statement. He's then dragged out to the outskirts of town probably close to where they crucified Christ. Who knows? And they stoned him. By law, the accusers were required to throw the first stones and then the witnesses. Imagine the conflict within as they threw those rocks, knowing that their accusations were completely false and this was innocent blood being shed in front of them. Innocent blood on Israeli soil, a great shame to be brought on their nation. Imagine how further confounding that would have been when they saw him still praying. Lord, Jesus being on the same level as God himself. Lord, receive my spirit. Don't hold this sin against them. The aftermath of the church's first martyr brought about great things. As we learned last week, he was most likely one of the Hellenized Jewish Christians that we read about, given his Grecian name that he had. And the things he taught the people here began the rumblings of world mission, where his Hellenized world could be reached out to. His death created a shockwave through the church community from both sides. After Saul saw and approved what went on with Stephen, he then went on a rampage and was beginning to make his presence felt. And the heavily increased persecution forced the church out of Jerusalem. But as we read into chapter 8 and beyond, the gospel is now being preached in the despised areas like Samaria. And it's even starting to have international influence. Stephen's legacy was that what he taught equipped the church for the time of scattering and witness abroad. 
with Christ fulfilling everything the law and the temple stood for, there was no need to be tied to it in such a sentimental or sacred way. Stephen showed us the Old Testament tied God to his people regardless of location. He met them where they were, not in the buildings they made. As a result, they now understood that Jesus would be with them wherever they went, no matter how far from the temple they got. And as if to put the nail in that coffin, a couple of decades later, the temple was completely destroyed anyway. But also, with the Jews being found out to be so out of favor with the law through their rejection of Christ, they were now on equal standing with the rest of humanity. But more importantly, the rest of humanity was put on equal footing with the Jews, in that the God of Israel was also the God of all humanity. By being forced away from their temple meeting place, and by being forced away from their spiritual center, they were able to see how that could actually be in practice. That wherever they went, God would be with them. Sacred ground would accompany them, and God would move powerfully and people's lives would be touched. Now this is just this is another transitional chapter actually where Luke shifts his literary focus from Jerusalem ministry into the beginnings of world mission and we're going to start going on to that next week. We'll expand on a lot of what is spoken here today in more detail but there's a couple of lessons that we can take away from this passage today as we go. Just a few thoughts I want to leave with us as we leave today. One, the sacredness of the temple and the law means nothing if our hearts are uncircumcised. Even throughout Paul's letters, he talks about circumcision of heart. It's something that applies to all of us. It's something within our heart that needs to be set apart for God. Loads of people out there are like, and even in the church world today, are like the Sanhedrin mentioned here. They consider themselves religious and have a form or a heritage to prove it. In today's world, this can equate to church attendance or service. And many times this can be done out of keeping public appearance or or keeping up with the obligation that we have rather than the deep reverence for the living Christ. Although the outward is looking right and we're doing the right things, it's quite possible to do all that and have the inside not be set apart for God. The Jews had the outward look of law-keeping, but had the dark history of law breaking because their inner being was not open to God and his life-changing word. I'll let you in a little bit of a secret here. I've led a lot of religious people to Christ, including good Baptists. I've led loads of people who grew up in church all their life into relationship with Jesus Christ. And they're looking at me going, I've never heard this before. I've never known this before. The question I have to ask is this, is our heart truly set apart for Jesus Christ? That's for you, to, you and God to decide. But here's the lesson. External religiosity is a poor counterfeit for inner, genuine, heartfelt faith. Are we religious or are we saved? Second, Jesus doesn't need us to defend him. 
He vindicates those who speak the truth both now and in eternity. There's been a lot of talk about this. Look, there's been a lot of news headlines about the Islamic um, community revolting against a a, a clip being made on YouTube. You've heard about the Sydney uh, rioting outside the US Embassy and all that sort of stuff. We've heard about that, haven't we? You know, has that not been, has, has anybody not heard about that? You know, it's, it's posed a few good questions along the way. Even the church is starting to ask questions like this. Are we as Christians supposed to, to respond in a similar way? Right now in Brisbane, there is a play. They've got an arts festival and there's two ladies that are going to come. Apparently, they're going to be too, it's going to be very um, sexually driven, but there's, they're going to be making a big mock-up of the Lord's Supper using these two women and a heap of new age hippie um, awful stuff and a lot of immoral stuff. And the, the Queensland government is funding that. Does that mean the, the Church of Queensland needs to go up to Parliament and start throwing um, petrol bombs and going loud and, and proud about this? Would it help our cause in any way for us to riot because someone does a mocking video or does a poor play like this? If we follow the lead of Stephen, the answer is no. Our call as Christians is to speak truth in love. We're called to forgive those that persecute us and love those that mock. It's a tough call, but God is bigger than us. We've got to remember that. God is bigger than us. He's more concerned about his good name than we are. If he doesn't act, we shouldn't. We are simply called to be faithful, knowing that one day, like in our story today, Jesus will be standing next to the Father, confessing us before him, and our love and our truth will reap eternal harvest and eternal reward. And finally, as we close, bring everything to a close, and I invite um, you know, the musicians and singers to come up and, and be, get ready for our next bracket of worship. The third thing is this. We need to get ready to take our faith outside the temple and outside Jerusalem. Next week, we'll begin looking at the many ways this happened throughout the remainder of Acts, starting with the Samaritans. That'll be a lot of fun next week. I'll start harping on it then. But in the meantime, let's let God speak to us about what that might mean for our church. A pastor um, once said that the church needs to take its salt and pour it out of the shaker because only then can the world be seasoned. There's a lot of churches out there that have their holy huddle and we've got a really great seasoning base sitting in the walls of a church. But sometimes we need to shake it out there. And we've got to take our faith outside the walls of Jerusalem, outside the walls of the, of the temple, and making it available to the rest of the world. But that's a good parting comment as we go from here. But let's just let's, um, you know, continue to read through that and see how God can work there. We're about to come into a time where God's going to do some great things in our church and in our midst, in our community. I know God is doing some great things in our midst. But let's pray, and then uh, we're going to give some time some worship here.